I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 17th, 2013. Coming up, we'll hear about the scientific way to protect your home from a wildfire. And we'll talk about how while the days are getting shorter right now, that's even though the sunsets are actually getting longer. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And what about other egg-borne animals? Which came first, the egg or the snake? New research from George Washington actually provides an answer, at least for snakes and lizards. It turns out that 175 million years ago, snakes and lizards gave birth to live young. George Washington University researcher Alex Pyron calls this a controversial finding that's a major overturn of an accepted school of thought. Most researchers have assumed that once an animal switched from laying eggs to live birth, it never went back. And since most snakes and lizards lay eggs today, the researchers figured the matter was settled. But for snakes and lizards, recent fossil discoveries have cracked that assumption. Snakes and lizards used to have live births and only more recently switched to laying eggs. Pyron hopes to continue his studies to figure out why the switch back to eggs happened. The research has been published today in Ecology Letters. Many people think of an MRI magnetic resonance imaging as a way to improve their health by doing diagnostics. But for the first time, researchers have confirmed an association between a common MRI contrast agent and abnormalities on brain MRIs, according to a new study published online in the journal Radiology. The new study raises the possibility that a toxic component of the contrast agent may remain in the body long after administration. The lead author of this study is Tomonori Kanda from the Tokyo School of Medicine. Kanda says that further research based on autopsy specimens and animal experiments will be needed to clarify whether this toxic chemical lingering in the brain of people who have MRIs also means some bad side effects. And for fans of Denver's Cafe Scientifique, mark your calendar for this Wednesday at the Pepsi Center at 6.30 p.m. That's when National Renewable Energy Lab scientist Benjamin Lee will talk about sustainable energy from sunlight, advances in solar cell technology. You can find out more by doing a Google search of Colorado Cafe Sci or by checking our website, howonearthradio.org. Your turn to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Shelley Schlender. In the fall of 2010, volunteer firefighters returning home after dark talked with terror about how the wind had picked up and the night sky was filled with glowing embers, 
thick as blowing snow, but not white. The embers were bright orange, and the firefighters knew that if any lodged inside of any rafters of mountain homes, more of those homes would be burning down that night. This was all part of Boulder's Four Mile Canyon fire, which burned nearly 200 homes. Four Mile was the most expensive wildfire in Colorado history, as measured by insurance claims, and the most homes burned, until the 2012 High Park and Waldo Canyon fires burned even more homes and caused even more damage. Then came 2013, when the Black Forest Fire near Colorado Springs destroyed 511 homes killed two people, making it the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history. No one knows how much damage the next big wildfire will bring. As for how to prevent that damage, a new analysis of Boulder's Four Mile Canyon fire offers stern advice. The research comes from the Rocky Mountain Research Station in Missoula, Montana. It concludes that while fire suppression efforts such as thinning forests may help prevent property damage from the typical wildfire that doesn't burn with great intensity, Fire suppression cannot stand up against the 3% of fires that burn super hot and spread super fast. What's more, the Missoula study reports that the super wildfires are just the ones that burn the most homes. With that in mind, the researchers conclude that the main responsibility for preventing home destruction from wildfires lies with homeowners rather than public land managers. They say that homeowners should do more to design homes that stand up to a super wildfire. So how can the owner of a mountain home truly protect his or her home? That's a question that wildfire scientist Steve Quarles asks every day. Quarles is with a fire prevention think tank known as DisasterSafety.org. Quarles recently came to Boulder to talk about the giant wind tunnel Disaster Safety uses for testing buildings against the embers in a wildfire, for instance. Quarles says that small changes in home building can reduce the chance that tiny, glowing embers blowing in the wind will get under the eaves and turn into a raging fire that burns down a house. Here's Steve Quarles. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about our research facility in South Carolina. It's in a a small town called Richburg. It's a a very large wind tunnel where we can put full-sized buildings in the wind tunnel and subject it to wind loads and things that wind carries. So one thing that wind can carry would be embers. So we've developed a way to create embers that we inject into the wind stream of the wind tunnel and then blow those at the house. You can blow rain at these houses. You can blow embers at these houses. How big a wind can you make with your huge wind tunnel room? So we can get uh, wind speeds up to 130 miles per hour. If you look at it, you can go online and and look at it. DisasterSafety.org is the URL. And if you go to the video button, you know, you can look at some video of various kinds of tests that we've done, you know, between wind and wind-driven rain and hail and ember storm. Have you been awed or sobered by what you can see wind or embers can do? I think we've been impressed by the way that seemingly small things can be important. Just a small number of clips that tie together one part of the house to another part of the house can be the difference between the house staying put and the house blowing away, you know, being sort of disassembled. That was impressive in in a way. I heard... 30 years ago, that when builders first moved to Boulder and were not aware that we have high winds, sometimes they would nail a roof on with just one nail in each corner of the building. 
and the roofs would fly off. We've learned more than that since then, but um, still there, you know, you tie the roof to the wall and the wall to the foundation and the house does better in these sort of wind events, you know. And so for embers, you know, it was some of the minor things that made a large amount of difference in terms of ember entry into the building, metal flashing at the drip edge, at the roof edge, that was a big deal, particularly it takes the need to be so vigilant about keeping pine needles, for example, out of your gutter. But if you don't, that's where embers are going to enter into the attic is through that joint where the fascia and the roof edge meet, but a simple drip edge. That same place that wasps get in is where the embers can get in. Yeah. So any kind of opening like that. Boxing in your eave, our studies have shown that vents that present a perpendicular face to the ember flow, so like a gable end vent or a vent and the blocking and in, in an open eave construction. So that's kind of the construction where you can look up at your eave area and see the rafter, rafter tails and you have blocking between the top of the wall and the, and the roof. If you have vents there, embers can enter more easily. But if you box in your eave by creating you know, a soffited eave, not so much. So just sort of minor things, but with a significant impact. That's wildfire scientist Steve Quarles talking about the house-sized wind tunnel that he's used to study just which building designs succumb to embers and which designs keep embers out. Up next, Quarles talks about some details about how to protect a home from wildfire by creating defensible space around the home, by trimming trees, by using gravel, by doing things like this, and also by designing a home itself that is less likely to burn. Interestingly, Quarles does not ban shake shingle roofs outright. He says that some treated shake shingles can be wonderfully fire-resistant if those shake shingles are properly maintained. Here's more from DisasterSafety.org's Steve Quarles. The local jurisdiction may or may not allow wood, whether it's treated or not. From a homeowner perspective, I would say that if they go this route, they would have to understand that there are maintenance issues that come with it. That's the other important point with a home that can resist a wildfire, is that it does so because the homeowner understands and takes care of maintenance items along the way. Steve Quarles, that includes raking the pine needles away from the house, but it may also include making sure that the treatments for wood surfaces and other surfaces are maintained because you're going to need them if there's a fire. Homes survive because the homeowner has done two things. One is that they've created and maintained what's called good defensible space, which is, you know, vegetation management on your property. And they've also taken care to use uh, good materials and uh, good design features for their house. You can't expect your house to survive unless you've done both things, and you've got to maintain those things. Are there times where you can't expect your house to survive no matter what? from what you've seen with your wind tunnel studies and what you've seen with wildfires? I think there are homes that are more challenging. And there are situations where the homeowner doesn't have control over property that might be close to them. Are there some wildfires that are so big and so hot, if you have a home in the path of that fire, you're not going to have a home after it passes through? I don't think that's the case. If you have the ability to 
get adequate defensible space and you've taken the care to take care of materials and design things about your house, the, the difficulty in some cases is having the property to do defensible space things. But if you can do those things and if you as a homeowner are willing to have that look well, that means not a lot of trees right next to your house and a lot more gravel, a lot more dirt, a cistern someplace nearby so that you have water nearby. Not exactly your classic house in the pine trees look. It may not be that. You're correct. If you live in Mill Valley in California, do you live in the city or do you live up in the forest? I live in the county. I live in the highest hazard zone. The community where I am is, is rated that way. Highest hazard, meaning you're in a place where your house could burn. Have you made sure that it won't? I try to practice what I preach. We've replaced all our windows with tempered glass. I have a deck that complies with the California requirements. Um, my siding complies with California requirements. I have a good roof. I clean my gutters. have pretty good um, defensible space. I think you know that would be my downfall. I'd have pretty good, but I'm sure it could be better. That was wildfire scientist Steve Quarles describing ways his research leads him to conclude that with proper building design and solid efforts to create a defensible space, more mountain homes can withstand even a major, out-of-control, very hot wildfire, which is the kind of fire that has burned record numbers of mountain homes in recent years. For the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Jim Poland. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Stay tuned as we look at sunnier topics than wildfire, specifically the topic of the winter solstice, and what time to expect tomorrow for dawn sunrise. Although the shortest day of the year is at the solstice, the latest sunrise occurs after the solstice and the earliest sunset occurs before the solstice that's happening this Friday. The sunset is going to get later, faster and faster now, while the sunset time is going to also get later until after the solstice, then start creeping earlier. So what time was the sunset yesterday, tomorrow, next week? What time is sunrise? Jim Pullen is going to be our expert as we here at How on Earth look at how you figure out just what's happening with the sunrises and sunsets on our way to Saturday's winter solstice. Yeah, Hello, Shelley. Well, you know, uh, I've got my apple, you've got your earth orbit platter, and tennis ball. Those are going to be our earth, and those are going to be our earth and earth orbit. Okay, well, so this... this um this this lid for this um, slow cooker is kind of a big oval shape. So we've got this. So in the middle is this the top of the lid. That's the sun. This is the oval orbit of the Earth. My tennis ball is the Earth itself. What's the sunrise and sunset? Well, let's see here. Now, here in the orange book at KGNU, we keep all the important things we want to read, and including uh, the solar data for uh, the latitude and longitude of Denver. I'm going to pull it out here. But, you know, as you're doing that, Jim, I knew that there were some geeks here at the station, but I didn't realize we were so geeky we keep track of sunrise and sunset, but it's rather 
charming in a way. Well, you know, this is the time of year when people are kind of tired of short winter days. But interestingly enough, and, and certainly I'm not the only, and you're not the only geek here, Joel Parker and many others are pretty geeky too. But, uh, you know, the um, it, it turns out that... Um, these are actually the shortest winners, and that winners in the past and winners in the future will be longer. You mean that the days that we're having right now are shorter than usual winter days compared to days 100 years ago for winter? Well, not quite. Actually, our, the, the time of winter, the season of winter, is, 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 is less now than it has been in the past. You, you mean climate-wise or orbit-wise? Orbit-wise, orbit-wise. Wow. So, so there's a season which is called the solstice because it's when the days are getting way shorter, and we're having fewer of those days, so we should cherish them. Yeah, that's right. You know, we live at a good time in Earth's history right now. But, of course, you know, that isn't true in the su- southern hemisphere because their winters are kind of longish now, and their summers are the shorter summers than they would have had in years past and future. Now, I can't help but wonder right now, what time was the sunset what time was the sunrise today, and what time will the sunset be? Well, it's the 17th, isn't it? So l- looking here at my chart, the sun rose this morning on the ball of the earth. And, of course, we don't have any balls on the earth here in Denver. Uh, but it rose at 714 and was set at 436. And, oh, by the way, it's set at 434 just about a week plus ago. So we're gaining now. or actually gaining some light at the end of the day. Okay. I'm trying to get my head around this because the days are getting shorter when you count the number of sunlight hours in the day, but you're saying that even though the days are getting shorter, the short, the earliest sunrise was a whole week ago. Excuse me. Whoa, but this is so confusing. <laughs> the earliest sunset was a full week ago, and already the sunsets are getting further out. Yeah, how right, how right you are, Shelley. And uh, actually, uh, although the the sun sets are going to be creeping later and later and later. The sunrise is going to be a little creeping a little bit later and later faster. And so the shortest day of the year is going to be at the solstice. But the sunrise time is going to shoot past the solstice into early January when it'll start creeping back towards where it should be. Okay, so we're talking about something that is designed by the powers that be in the universe to mean that the spinning of the earth creates the sunrises and sunsets as the earth travels around the sun. But my head is spinning right now trying to figure this out. So you're saying that the sunsets are slowly getting later in the day, but the sunrises right now are kind of galloping later in the day too, and they're galloping faster than the sunsets are kind of walking along, getting longer. Yeah, it's like a race. It's like a race now towards the end of the day. Think of two racehorses, one of which is we'll call the sunset, and it's traveling uh, slowly towards the uh, later and later towards the end of the track. But the and but uh, it, the, you know back behind it, the other horse called Sunrise is traveling faster and faster and faster toward the end of the track, which is noon. <laughs> and so, in in the middle of this, it's the distance between the sunrise and the sunset that determines how long the day is. And so since the sunrise horse is galloping faster than the sunset horse, the sun, the day of the sun is staying shorter right now. Well, sometime in January, that uh, sunset racehorse is going to turn around, start racing the other direction, <laughs> back towards midnight. The, uh, the, you know, it's sun is going to rise earlier and earlier. 
okay, so the sunrise at some point in January will, the horse will slow down and the distance between the sunrise horse and the sunset horse will get longer and longer. But right now the sunrise horse is catching up with the sunset horse. Yep, it sure is. Actually, For I another week or so. Well, you know, I bet you that there aren't really horses up there in the sky. Well, brave Helios, wake up your steeds. Bring us the warmth the countryside needs. We are hearing some moody blues today. That's okay. another moody blues song. So brave Helios, well, that's right. The, the, the Greeks and the Romans all pictured that the sun was a chariot racing through the sky. And it's a good analogy for explaining what's happening, sort of. It tells me what's happening, but I don't understand why it's happening. Why, why, why isn't our earth that I kind of like to think is balanced in a very solid kind of symmetrical way why is it so wobbly that the sunrise and the sunset don't just keep pace with each other? Well, the 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 uh, time it really has to do with time, and it has to do what with uh, the time that we perceive sitting here on the Earth uh, by where the sun is. Now we all know where noon is; that's when the sun climbs highest in the sky. But our clocks, which are based on, which are a bit more regular than the sun, tell us that noon is at a different time than the sun tells us. And that's because the sun isn't moving through the sky at a constant rate through the year. Oh, I get it. So what you're saying is that if if you're just the sun and the earth, it's a balanced race. It's It's a very symmetrical way that things are getting longer and shorter. But we happen to have this thing called clocks with hours on them. And our clocks that we set up way back when don't quite synchronize with the real way that the Earth balances day and night. Well, it's kind of actually the opposite of that. Our clocks are, our old timey clocks were based on the sun and the stars and things like that. And but our new clocks are based on things like cesium atoms and and atomic clocks. And uh, they kind of tell us a better, more regular time of day. And it turns out that the time of day that they tell us is not the same time of day that the sun tells us because the sun isn't, the motion of the sun in the sky isn't very constant. So our cesium clocks are less wobbly than our sun. But um, nonetheless, this sort of explains what's happening. Right. And and we can we can benefit from the fact that if you really like to see sunshine, then don't get up too early because it's going to be darker than you want. <laughs> yes, indeed. It, it, you know, and another thing, it's, you know, this, this discrepancy, there's another thing. It's called the mean solar time. If the Earth's orbit was a circle and there was no tilt to the Earth's orbit, then the, the Earth would go around the sun. It's really the Earth that's moving, not the sun. The Earth would go around the sun at a, a regular pace. But because the Earth's orbit is elliptical, the Earth speeds up and slows down as it goes around its orbit. And that's what causes, that's what causes this effect. Boy, I kind of need a seatbelt on to be on the Earth, it sounds like. Well, speaking of a way to belt out the end of this segment, you have some beautiful music that's a sentiment about the sun. I sure do. Let's uh, cue it up. This day will last a thousand years if you want. 
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bartell. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender and additional contributions by moi. And thank you, Jim, for that. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Hans Zimmer's Backdraft from Edvard Grieg and from the Moody Blues. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Shelley Schlender.